This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 11th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Congress's focus on the attack on the Capitol earlier this year is valuable. But are members foregoing the kind of oversight that should be occurring continuously, especially as we mark 20 years of the liberty-crushing Patriot Act and other sweeping government authorities? Cato's Pat Eddington comments. I can remember, perhaps vaguely, and Pat, maybe you remember this better than I do, uh, a time when uh, lawmakers would get elected and then would set out to do the the basic, boring, uh, unpleasant, necessary work of providing congressional oversight over uh, federal agencies, over the various activities of the government, failures of the government. And uh, perhaps I'm blinded by uh, lawmakers who would rather be appear to would re- appear to be social media stars and would rather uh, own the other side on Twitter uh, than do that sort of basic governance work. Uh, am I wrong about that? Is there a a reduced interest in sort of the basic oversight, the critical oversight functions that Congress provides? I don't think there's any question that the crop of of legislators, uh, both parties, both chambers that we have at the federal level uh, are not cut from the same cloth as folks, let's say, from the Watergate era. You know, there's this famous story about the late Senator Edmund Muskie, whereby uh, he had this habit uh, at oversight hearings, among other things, of sticking around uh, as his colleagues would basically kind of get bored with things and he would simply collect their proxies. uh, And that is how he would be able to, to win an awful lot of votes uh, when they had markups and things of that nature, because he was willing to kind of stick with it. And the late the late Senator uh, Ted Kennedy, Massachusetts, uh, I would argue, one of the last uh, truly serious legislators that we've had. Well, you know, whether you agree with his policies, his policy choices or, or, or not is kind of a separate issue. But just in terms of a commitment to the institution, institutional prerogatives, things of that nature, particularly oversight of the executive branch. I, I don't think there's any question, you know, that that we're living um, we're living in a very dark age in that respect. So, uh, with respect to January sixth, this was uh, a terrible event uh, that occurred at the Capitol. Seemed, at the least in the in the moment, to have caught the agencies uh, charged with supervising and protecting the Capitol. Seems to have caught them completely off guard. Democrats obviously want to make some political hay out of this, but also presumably want to prevent an event like this from occurring again. So what kind of oversight are they doing with respect to that event? Well, of course, the the original plan was to try to have some kind of independent commission, uh, you know, to look at this whole event. Frankly, I'm glad that that collapsed because I hate it when Congress outsources uh, its fundamental oversight responsibilities to uh, so-called independent commissions. I don't think they ever wind up really getting at the at the heart of the matter. Um, but we have this, uh, you know, bipartisan January 6th commission. And I know that some people are going to say that we should put an asterisk next to that, that bipartisan part. Uh, but we do have, um, uh, two Republicans, uh, who of course opposed, uh, president Trump's policies, but particularly opposed what he did and what he essentially encouraged between November of, uh, 2020 and January 6th, 2021. So, for the most part, it's been a lot of press releases so far and efforts to issue subpoenas. They want to go after uh, the president's former protege, Steve Bannon. There are other folks that they're basically trying to 
to get via subpoena. And, you know, those are all legitimate activities. The concern that I have, and I think it's a concern that's shared by a lot of folks uh, in civil society organizations across the spectrum, is that congressional Democrats, particularly House Democrats, have allowed January 6th, the events of January 6th, and the aftermath of it, to pretty much suck the oxygen out uh, of every other potential oversight issue that we should be concerned about. And and I think we really do need to pause for a second here and, and remember that on October 26, 2021, we marked the 20th anniversary of the passage and the signing into law of the most sweeping surveillance structure our country has ever known. I'm speaking, of course, of the Patriot Act. And if you were to go onto congress.gov right now and you were to type in the phrase Patriot Act and, and make sure that you, you put it inside of quotation marks, um, when you do that, you won't come up with a single bill that's been introduced to repeal it or modify it. And I think... That for me is like the bellwether that really shows how far off the rails Congress is at this point in time. Um, and we've also had a, an interesting Biden administration, well, interesting maybe be the wrong word, kind of a frightening Biden administration proposal to have the IRS uh, begin to monitor people's bank accounts if they have transactions in excess of $600. Um, the Patriot Act standard right now is $10,000. Um, and and to just kind of give people a sense of perspective on this, like a real world sense of perspective. I'm not a PlayStation guy, but if you're a PlayStation person and you buy a new PS5 console and you buy a few games for your kids, you're going to be over 600 bucks really quick. So if they turn around and actually engage in this nonsense, they're going to wind up snagging an awful lot of parents who've gone out and bought their kids new PlayStations and games to go with them. And to be clear, when you in, when you saw, talk about the Patriot Act and the $10,000, we are talking about individual transactions of $10,000. We're not talking about $10,000 in a year. That's and, right. That's exactly uh, that's, right. That's uh, the, the Biden proposal, which, uh, as, I, as I understand it, is no longer a part of their uh, legislation. Um would have been $600 in a year, which yeah. most bank accounts, I would guess, have yeah. that much activity in a year. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we have that going on. Uh, we have, you know, facial recognition. The, the Transportation Security Administration has got a so-called pilot program that they're running in several cities right now. I have no doubt they want to make it uh, a permanent thing at every airport, right? Um, we all know that the facial recognition uh, software, the algorithms they use, uh, are inherently flawed. They're almost always biased. You wind up, you know, getting the wrong people oftentimes. And do we want, do we want the executive branch? Do we want the Department of Homeland Security and, and its, and its air protection arm, TSA, to have the photograph of every American traveler? Um, why? Why, why do they need that? Why do they need to store it? You know, why, why do we need any of that kind of stuff? At the end of the day, we don't. But, but this is the kind of, of creeping surveillance state that, that we're getting in this country. And it's happening because Congress is, Overly distracted, I would say, uh, by the events of January the sixth. And again, I don't, I don't want to minimize, and we're not trying to minimize here, the, the, you know, what happened on that particular day. But you know, I worked on the Hill for over ten years, and my attitude is Congress should be able to, to to walk and chew gum at the same time, so to speak. They should be able to handle, you know, multiple issues uh, and and kind of keep them moving, particularly from an oversight standpoint. And that's just. That's just not happening. Well, you know, uh, not to diminish uh, January 6th, but uh, on this issue of financial surveillance, I would love to get Ron Wyden on the record uh, talking about the financial surveillance of o o virtually every American uh, where uh, in almost every other context, he would virulently oppose uh, 
uh, that kind of uh, surveillance and has has been on the record doing so. So with respect to just the the mundane task of sitting down and arguing about particular authorities, we get, uh, I, I think, maybe even an anti-Trump bias here. That is that is worse. They are so focused on this one thing that uh, all these other issues fall by the wayside. What what would correct this? What would fix this? You know, that's the tough one, of course. At, at the end of the day, we, we have to have members come back to their senses about exactly what they should really be focused on. And look, I, I get the concern that a lot of folks, it's not just Democrats, you know, there are a lot of traditional Republicans, I'd say Republicans that would fall into the mold of a Bob Michael or a Howard Baker, uh, you know, from a slightly earlier era, um, you know, who have concerns about, you know, that kind of individual. But that's exactly why I and our colleague Julian Sanchez and others at Cato constantly talk about the need to rein in these authorities because they can be misused by any president. I mean, let, let's remember that it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt who chose to ignore the Supreme Court's decision in the Nardone case in 1939 and then subsequently told his then attorney general, Robert Jackson, in May 1940. Yeah, generally, I agree. I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but generally, I agree with what the Supreme Court said, except in national security cases. And in those cases, go ahead and wiretap. And that's exactly what the executive branch did under both Democratic and Republican presidents. Uh, basically about up to the time that we finally had the church committee and then later on the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So for decades, you know, so-called national security wiretapping was taking place without any kind of, of, of judicial approval. And those precedents ultimately, you know, became a real problem. They continue to be a problem. And that's why I worry about things like the Patriot Act, because we're 20 years now with this legislation. And, and in, in previous conflicts, you know, going back to the First World War, for example, when the conflict was actually over, you know, a lot of the more serious legislation, uh, the Sedition Act, for example, and the Food Control Act, things of that nature, they were in fact repealed under under President Harding. But not everything was, right? The Espionage Act stayed with us. The Trading with the Enemy Act stayed with us. And that's what I worry about here is this ratcheting effect um, that, that we may see and we are seeing essentially, you know, with this kind of legislation. And unless we get legislators, you know, in this body, either the current legislators or a new crop of legislators who understand that they should be concerned about the institutional threat uh, that these powers represent and their ability to be misused by any president, we're all in grave danger. Yeah, we're uh, you seem to be asking for some wisdom that uh, we don't tend to see from uh, Congress critters, as they are occasionally called. and if you wanted to make a political statement on behalf of, I don't know, your party, because you're concerned about the risk that a future president or a future slash former president uh, is uh, might undertake, well, it, it would seem that reducing the authorities of federal agencies might be a good place to start. I think that would be the ideal place to start. Quite frankly, there's just really no question about that. I mean, the history of these kinds of powers is that they are inevitably abused. It's not a question of whether they will be abused. It's only a question of when and how badly and how many people who will have their lives ultimately destroyed by that kind of thing. And we're not without examples of even the authorities that were approved in uh, 2001 of these authorities either being ineffective, uh, wasteful or uh, a dramatic 
parochial overreach by individuals within those agencies. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but very few people, if any, have been reprimanded or fired over it. No, um, you, you simply don't see that. You know, there is no accountability, you know, for these kinds of overreaches. Uh, you know, we, we just we just don't see them. Um, and, and we have a problem clearly with the courts here, too. And it's a very serious problem. And, and our colleague, uh, Clark Neely and, and other folks on our criminal justice team, you know, they've done some really outstanding work in this area, looking at the composition of the federal judiciary in terms of who comes to the bench as a former government advocate, if, if you will. And here we're really talking about former federal prosecutors versus folks who, let's say, come out of the criminal defense field. Or perhaps law professors, people who spent most of their time as a law professor, like uh, current Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. She stands out really as, as an exception to the rule. Uh, for the most part, you know, these former federal prosecutors outnumber non-prosecutors by something between 10 and 12 to 1, depending upon how you, how you kind of slice it. So is it any real shock then that we get no, we get no traction on things like criminal justice reform, that we get no traction on things like qualified immunity? That we get no traction on trying to, you know, overturn this whole idea of state secrets, et cetera, et cetera. No, it, it doesn't come as a shock at all. And and so these institutional problems that have developed are exactly the kind of thing, and especially on the Senate side, when we talk about confirmation for judges, that we need to have fundamental changes on. We need a change in mindset, a change in attitude, and and a renewed skepticism uh, about, uh, executive power. I mean, this is really how our country started it. Our very first form of government, if you could even call it that in some respects, the articles of confederation, you know, we're kind of predicated on the idea that centralized authority is something that leads to abuse at the end of the day. And even though we wound up going with a slightly more centralized system because of some of the events that took place between 1781 and 1789, even in that debate over the constitution itself, it was recognized that creating a, a president, if you will, a permanent chief executive could potentially be laying the seeds for the kinds of abuse that we've seen. And unfortunately, that's exactly how it's turned out. Pat Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>